my name is Terry Shellington. I'm honored to be your moderator. And uh, I have some things to tell you that uh, if you're a regular at SACPO, you will already know. Um, I, I ask you to turn your cell phones off and to put $14 uh, in the dish, unless you're having just coffee and then it's, uh, it's is it $2? Yeah. Um, so uh, th this program will be aired on Shaw TV actually three times a day uh, during the coming weeks, so you can uh, catch up with, the, with it there. Um, we ask somebody at each table to count the money and make sure that as uh, we'll come around and collect uh, after the speech and uh, someone can count it to make sure that it's all in order. Uh, so we're very pleased to have uh, our speaker with us this morning. You know, over the years, this Parkland Institute has been a real friend to this council with doing, they do a lot of research and are very generous with their time. And today we welcome the executive director of uh, Parkland Institute, Ricardo Acuna. And uh, he's going to address, uh, do oil pipelines make any sense? Now, uh, Ricardo uh, has dealt with uh, oil and fossil fuels in a lot of different ways, uh, including being on the steering committee of a mapping project, um, a six-year research project around uh, the fossil fuel sector and its power. So uh, something you may not know about him is he's also the chair of the board of Oxfam Canada and the deputy chair of Oxfam International. So he does more than just oil. Uh, and we're really pleased to have you, Ricardo, and I ask you to come to the mic. Okay, I'm going to try and put this in just the right spot and then watch it fall little by little over the course of the talk, because that's what these things do. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction, and thank you so much for the invitation to come join you today and speak with you a little bit. Um, as was said, at the Parkland Institute, we do public policy analysis. Um, and our mandate is to actually put out policy alternatives. So to actually broaden the scope of discussion on public policy in the province. And it's based on the premise that people can best participate in the decisions that impact their lives when they have as much information as possible from as broad a range of sources as possible. That's what we do. That's what our goal is, and that's actually what I want to talk a little bit about today. Because this is an issue, the issue of pipelines is an issue that's consumed a lot of bandwidth publicly over the course of the last six months. It's taken up a lot of space, a lot of media of attention, a lot of government attention in the last six months. And what I think we're not really asking is this question of, of do pipelines make sense for us in terms of the public interest? And to actually ask that question and deal with it in a positive, constructive way, we really need to have clear information on both sides. And I fear that right now, the way this debate has been going, we don't have the clear information we need from both sides to make that decision as to whether these things make sense or not. There's been a lot of overblown rhetoric on both sides, a lot of posturing and screaming and yelling. And quite frankly, a lot of inflated and made-up statistics and numbers on both sides. So what I'm hoping to do today is cut through that a little bit and talk about some of the things that we do know, some of the things that are possible, and then some of the things that we just don't know as we try to figure out this decision. I'm not actually going to answer the question 
in these 30 minutes of whether pipelines make sense or not. Um, but I do want to start from that premise of the fact that, you know, all public policy has winners and losers. All public policy is a compromise. And when we do public policy well, what we're able to do is say, what are the negative impacts potentially of that public policy? What are the positive impacts of that public policy? And do the positive impacts provide enough positives to outweigh those negatives, to make it okay to deal with the negatives? And when, to do that, we need to know what those positives and negatives are. So, um, I'm going to limit my comments specifically to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, not only because that's the one that's been really in the news over the course of the last six months, but also because that's the one that each one of us in this room now owns two centimeters of. So I think there's a direct, a direct stake in us having this conversation. Um, and what I want to start with is actually, you know, I've done a lot of digging, we've done a lot of work at Parkland and through the corporate mapping project on this pipeline, and there are three things that I know for sure about it. And these three things would come in the category of the negative. So I'm going to start with those certainties that we know for sure. And then I'll talk about some of the positive things that we may not, not, may not know and some of the positive things that may come out. So I'm going to start with these first three things that I know are negative impacts or potential impacts of this pipeline. That's not to say that these are reasons why we shouldn't do it. That's to say that as we have this debate, these are the negatives that we need to weigh to make sure that our positives overcome these. So the first one, we cannot build and fill the Trans Mountain Pipeline and meet Canada's commitments under the Paris Climate Accords. That's like a straight up reality. Um, Canada and 195 other countries have now signed the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. And the goal of the agreement is to keep global temperature rise uh, well below two degrees Celsius um, and pursue efforts to limit it even further to keep it below 1.5 degrees. Our commitment as a country, Canada, under the Paris Climate Agreement is to reduce our emissions by 30% below 2005 levels by the year 2030. Um, although provincial governments aren't assigned specific targets under the Paris Agreement, they're national targets, every province is starting to step up to say how they're going to meet their share of those Paris commitments. Um, the problem is that in Alberta, our trajectory next actually allows oil sands production to grow by 53%. Um, this is the production growth that the Trans Mountain Pipeline is ostensibly met levels. So based on what we're emitting today per barrel of oil, in terms of meeting that target, what meeting that growth in our oil sands means is that economy would have to reduce emissions by 47% between now and um, that level of reduction is impossible. Given a complete national economic collapse, that level of reduction on that front, building the pipeline means we blow right through our Paris commitments and we have no say for sure we know and we're aware of is that building and filling the Trans Mountain Pipeline will actually blow our 100 megaton emissions cap for the oil sands in Alberta. According to petroleum producers cap and current emission levels, our existing rail is right up to the 100 megaton cap. So combined railway and pipelines today, we have enough to meet that 57% increase or 53% increase in production in the oil sands that'll get us up to the 100 megaton emissions cap, uh, which both Trump and Trudeau strongly support. And Enbridge's line three 
from Hardesty to Wisconsin, which Trudeau has now approved, assuming both of those get built, then pipeline capacity alone will be enough to meet our projected production up until that 100 megaton emissions cap. So we can produce up to 100 megatons worth of emissions, worth of bitumen, and have enough pipeline capacity if those two other pipelines get built, or have enough pipeline and rail capacity if they don't get built to meet that production level. So then what goes in the Trans Mountain Pipeline will all necessarily be in excess of our 100 megaton emission cap in Alberta. So just by virtue of building it and trying to fill it, we're going to blow through that cap. Um, the counter-argument to this coming from government, uh, in particular, is that there will be innovation in bitumen production over the course of the next 15 years, which will mean that we never actually reach the cap, but there's no evidence presented to show that we can actually do that. In fact, just last month, the Canadian Energy Research Institute um, released a new report which takes into account reduced capacity as a result of the economic slowdown uh, of the past couple of years, and even they now suggest that we'll hit our cap by 2030 in terms of emissions. So the evidence is just not there that we can reduce emissions enough. Putting anything in that pipeline will mean blowing through that 100 megatons emissions cap. And then the third point that I want to raise is that the Trans Mountain Pipeline, as currently conceived, violates our commitment under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People to proper and effective consultation and to free prior and informed consent. Both Article 19 and Article 32 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People put on government the duty to co consult and cooperate in good faith with Indigenous peoples um, and to get consent from Indigenous peoples on public policy and on any major infrastructures programs going through their traditional lands. So consult and cooperate in good faith Pre, uh, free and informed consent and prior to the approval of projects. Um, in the lead up to the 2015 federal election, Justin Trudeau asserted quite clearly uh, that if elected prime minister for him, no from any First Nation on any pipeline project would mean no. Right, really kind of coming down on that consent thing. If we don't get consent from every First Nation, then it's a no. Um, he promised a nation-to-nation -nation relationship with First Nations based on recognition of inherent indigenous, aboriginal, and treaty rights, um, but also to repeal legislation that had been imposed on First Nations without their consent by the Conservative Party uh, of former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Within two months of being elected, Trudeau's cabinet approved the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, this despite a First Nations consultation process that he himself had said during the election had been flawed and inadequate. Um, not all First Nations on the pipeline route uh, and whose traditional lands and waters would be impacted by the pipeline have granted their consent. So to move forward with these, given the Prime Minister's acknowledgement of a flawed consultation process and the lack of free, uh, free and prior informed consent from all First Nations is a violation of our commitments under UNDRIP. Again, those things aren't to say that the pipeline shouldn't be built. Those things are just to say that these are the negatives that we know that we should keep in mind, right? There are also negative impacts that we have a sense of, but that we don't have evidence of, that we don't have hard proof of or evidence of. Um, not going to go into detail on these, but these are the ones that we hear regularly from First Nations communities, from environmental organizations, um, 
and they include things that we actually probably should know before we make this decision. Like, we don't actually know right now how diluted bitumen will behave in the case of a significant spill in the Pacific waters off the coast. We don't know that if that level of volume will sink or float. If it sinks, we can't clean it, right? So that's a huge unknown. Um, we don't know exactly what impact of tripling tanker traffic will have on the fish and wildlife habitat, habitats and patterns in the area, uh, specifically when it comes to the orca population uh, and the fish and wildlife relied upon by uh, the area's First Nations communities. We don't know what that tanker traffic will do. We've seen people guess what impact tanker traffic will have. We've seen people postulate, but we actually have no evidence because we've never seen that level of tanker traffic on that coast, so we don't know what will happen to those populations. And we don't know what impact a potential pipeline leak or rupture would have on the sensitive habitats along the pipeline route, especially when we consider that those habitats include the source water for most of our drinking water on the prairies. That's something we don't know what impact that kind of spill would have. So that kind of covers the known and unknown negatives of this project, right? I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the positives. And the problem here is that most of these are potential positive impacts. It gets a little harder to get a handle on because so much of the spin and rhetoric around the pipeline has come from its proponents and is often not really grounded in any specific research or data, or it's grounded in flawed research, and I'll get to some specifics. In short, though, the three main arguments being made by proponents of the pipeline are economic growth, increased jobs, and increased government revenue. Those are the three main arguments that we're hearing in favor of this pipeline. So I'm gonna try and break down each one of those a little further to see what exactly the numbers are and statistics are, and let's start with economic growth. This is the key one being made by pipeline proponents, the key one being made by our government here in Alberta. According to repeated media releases, interviews, social media campaigns, and billboards sponsored by the Alberta government, many of those billboards in BC, um, the lack of access to international markets, this is a direct quote, costs the Canadian economy up to $15 billion annually, or approximately $40 million per day. This is the economic impact that the government talks about, 15 billion annually, or 40 million per day. That number comes from a Conference Board of Canada report written in 2016 and a previous one written in 2013, the Conference Board of Canada. Both of those commissioned by Kinder Morgan to accompany their application for the pipeline. So the Conference Board wrote these reports for Kinder Morgan. Those reports arrive at those huge numbers of economic impact by using an approach called input-output modeling. Now, this approach is different from traditional cost-benefit analysis used by economists in measuring these types of projects in that it doesn't actually consider any social, economic, or environmental costs. It simply counts all economic activity as benefits. It's, it's a model that's often used by governments when they're pitching infrastructure projects to the public because it really inflates the economic benefits. In the case of Trans Mountain, for example, it takes all job creation and counts it as new money circulating in the economy. All job creation. The assumption there is that people who are gonna work on the pipeline don't have jobs now, right? The assumption there is that anybody who's going to get a job as a result of the pipeline is somebody who's actually not contributing to the economy right now. So right there you have that kind of first inflation of numbers. It also projects profits based on a flawed calculation of the international price premium, 
and assumes that all of that money will be circulated back into the economy by shareholders, so it adds that number. It says, okay, we're going to make this much more money when we can sell our bitumen to China, right? All of that money will come to shareholders as profits, and the shareholders will spend every cent of those profits in our economy. And it takes that number and adds it into the total economic benefit of the pipeline. Um, conservative economist Trevor Toome at the UFC School of Public Policy says in response to this modeling done by the conference board, he says, there's a joke, this is a quote, there's a joke among economists who look at economic impact studies and we say, okay, define all the costs as benefits and then double them and that's how we come up with our final number. And this is a conservative economist, right, who himself acknowledges that these, these types of studies, these input-output modeling studies are always inflated in terms of their impacts. Those conference board numbers are even more problematic because they are based on the supposed world price premium. Um, this is the premium, this belief that we'll get way more money for oil if we manage to get it to uh, global markets. Um, the premium is based on two factors. The first is that there's always been a difference in pricing between our product and light crude, right? That because our product is heavier and dirtier and more expensive to transport. So bitumen is always going to be sold cheaper no matter where you are, than light crude. Historically, that difference has averaged about $13 a barrel, but at times has increased significantly, especially over the past five to eight years, that differential has increased for two reasons. One, originally the spread grew because of a glut of cheaper U.S. shale oil on the market. This is what Premier Redford termed the bitumen bubble, right? So our product nobody wanted because there was so much cheap shale oil on the market. That glut has now abated a bit due to increased pipeline capacity in the U.S. and the fact that Donald Trump lifted the long-standing moratorium on U.S. energy exports. More recently, the spread grew because of pipeline constraints. Now, this is a tricky one, this notion of pipeline constraints, because there's acknowledgement that the price gap grew in the last year, especially this past winter, to levels of $30, $40 a barrel spread, because of pipeline constraints. But that wasn't because we didn't have enough pipelines. It's because the Keystone Pipeline, which moves a lot of that product, ruptured and was shut down completely for pretty much the month of November. And when it came back, they're still doing repairs and it's still not back up to full capacity. What that shutdown did is create a backlog of bitumen, which increased that price gap. Right? As the pipeline starts to come back into production mode, that gap will close. And a couple of times in May, and once just last week, the price differential has actually gone back down to that historical $13 a barrel difference. On those days that the price gap went back down to the $13 a barrel, there was no economic or financial advantage. There was no money being lost by any producer in Alberta as a result of not having the pipeline, right? But these reports, the conference board report, takes that $30 differential from November and says, we're going to project that differential forward, and that's how we're going to come up to the economic benefit number of the pipeline. Um, the second part of the differential comes from a belief that our product will yield higher prices in China than it does in the U.S. That was perhaps the case three or four years ago when internal pipeline capacity and the export ban kept cheaper U.S. oil off the world market. But in that last couple of years, that spread has also reduced to the point where if you consider the quality discount and the transportation costs for bitumen, 
our product would actually be obtaining a lower price in China for the better part of the last six months than it would in North America. So for the last six months, there has been no price premium with China. Our product would actually have sold cheaper in China than it does in the US. Besides that, there's a reality that we actually have no indication that the Chinese would even be willing to buy our product. We're supposing that if we get it to the coast, they will want it. We currently do get some of our product to type water through the existing um, Trans Mountain Pipeline. And the lion's share of that actually goes to the US West Coast rather than to China. So the product that's already reaching Tidewater, the Chinese aren't interested in for the most part. Right? So it's a big, big hope that if we can get more of it, they'll buy more of it. But there's actually no guarantee of that. And to base kind of economic projections of benefit on that hypothetical, I think, is, is very risky. So, it's clear that the economic benefit numbers being tossed around by the government in particular are grossly inflated and premised on a set of international energy market conditions that no longer exist. It's likely that there would be some economic benefit to Alberta and the Canadian economy should the pipeline be built. But as of right now, there's no evidence to show how big that benefit would actually be for us to make that decision based on. Second pro, often talked about, and I'm going to speed up a little bit here, is jobs. Right? The next pro-pipeline argument we hear all the time is jobs. This is one of the most compelling ones for the public at large given the number of jobs we lost in the industry in Alberta after the 2015 downturn. However, this is also perhaps the area where the rhetoric diverges the most from reality. Figures most commonly trotted out for job creation are that pipeline will create 15,000 direct jobs during the construction phase and 34,000 indirect jobs overall in Canada. That's 15,000 during construction, 34,000 overall. That first figure of $15,000 or 15,000 jobs, I don't know where it came from. Somebody made it up and then everybody started quoting everybody else <laughs> on that 15,000 job figure. I've searched every report, every submission that was made, I've searched everywhere I could for that 15,000 job to see how it was come to. There is no calculation anywhere that I could find. That's being used repeatedly, it's being used by Premier Notley, by Prime Minister Trudeau and by Kinder Morgan, but there's no source for it. Ever. They all source each other, right? So it was up on the Kinder Morgan website, and then Rachel Notley sourced Kinder Morgan, and Pierre Trudeau sourced Rachel Notley, but there's no actual source for that figure. Um, the second figure of $34,000, or 34,000 jobs, comes directly from the Conference Board of Canada report referenced earlier, and suffers from the same overestimation of the economic numbers. It takes that model and uses it to calculate every single direct indirect and induced job resulting from the pipeline itself, from increased bitumen production, from increased tanker traffic, and even from the investment of increased profits and dividends. It takes all of those and says 34,000 jobs will be created by this pipeline. Problematic because it starts from the premise that nobody is currently working, so everybody working on the pipeline itself is a new job. Every manufacturing person, every waiter, every cook, every dishwasher who serves a pipeline worker a hot dog, these are all counted as new jobs coming about as a result of the pipeline. right? Um, the most reliable numbers we seem to have in terms of job creation are those put forth by Kinder Morgan in their original application. And their application said that the pipeline would create 2,500 construction jobs a year for the two years that the pipeline is under construction. Then after that it would create 50 permanent operational jobs in Alberta and 40 permanent operational costs in BC. That's a far stretch from the 15,000 number that we're getting tossed around. 
Some job creation is possible as a result of expanded bitumen production uh, in order to fill the pipeline. Um, but it is important to keep in mind that here, too, the industry has changed over the past five years since the downturn. Current estimates suggest that at best, only one-third of the industry jobs lost between 2014 and 2016 will be recovered by 2021. At best, one-third of the jobs will come back. And the worst-case scenario projected forward by economists is that that number drops to one-quarter of those industry jobs lost coming back by 2021. Uh, this point is highlighted by the recent announcement by Suncor that the introduction of driverless trucks at its oil sands mines will result in a net loss of 400 jobs in this recovery phase. So the industry has changed. The jobs aren't there, even the jobs that were being projected forward back then. So yes, some new job creation, but a far cry from the numbers being thrown around by the government. The final one, case being made that the pipeline should be built because the increase in government revenues is needed to pay for things like roads, healthcare, and education. Here again, a bunch of numbers being tossed around. The first is that the pipeline would generate $46.7 billion in additional federal and provincial government revenues, and then in the small print, during construction in the first 20 years of operation. So over 20 years, $46.7 billion nationally. Break that down, that's about $2.3 billion per year divided amongst the feds and the provinces. Alberta's share of that would be $19.4 billion total, or just under $1 billion per year in increased government revenues. Uh, it certainly sounds impressive. It's less so when you consider the source of those numbers um, is that same Conference Board of Canada report that inflates GDP growth and jobs growth. Um, Conference Board of Canada arrives at the numbers by taking their inflated economic impact and job creation numbers and estimating how that growth would translate into corporate and individual income taxes. Um, even if those numbers weren't inflated, again, how significant is a billion dollars a year in extra revenue to a province that's running eight to $10 billion deficits every year, right? Um, second number being tossed around comes directly from Alberta Treasury Board and Finance, and they suggest that building the pipeline will result in extra $6.5 million per day, or about $2.3 billion per year in provincial government revenues, primarily from royalties. Um, again, there's no evidence there of how Alberta Treasury Board and Finance came at those numbers, uh, but it appears to be based on the extra royalties as a result of the, the Tidewater price differential increase, which we've already talked about is not really that big of an increase. Um, put that $2.3 billion per year, even if it's accurate, into context, a 2% sales tax in Alberta would generate some $3.2 billion a year in extra government revenue. So there are other ways to come up with that revenue if the government, if it was about the revenue to the provincial government. So uh, I'm going to sum up because I've got a minute left here. Uh, it is possible there'll be some economic growth in Alberta and Canada as a result of the construction. The extent is unknown. Um, in terms of jobs, we know that there will be 2,500 jobs a year for the two years of construction, 50 permanent jobs in Alberta, 40 permanent jobs in BC. Any job numbers beyond that, we don't know about. Um, increased production will come from increased production, sorry, increased production will result in increased jobs, right? But we don't know how many because the industry is changing. Um, and if there is to be a benefit to provincial coffers, it will come almost exclusively from volume. Again, increased production rather than a predictable tidewater differential. So based on the best available research and in industry trends out there right now, we can say the following. The benefits statements being used by government and pro-pipeline advocates are largely overstated. 
There is a possibility for some moderate economic growth, job creation, and increased government revenue as a result of building the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but those would primarily come from increased production rather than a supposed Tidewater price premium. So the questions we as Albertans need to ask ourselves is, are those moderate benefits as we know them that we stand to receive from this project worth abandoning our Paris commitments, our 100 megaton emissions cap, and our commitments to our country's First Nations? Thank you.